This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 38 Today we're joined by Sitka Whitetail Ambassador and Head Guide at Real McCoy Outdoors, Donnie Wilson. We're talking tips for choosing an outfitter, Donnie's two 200-inch deer, and tips for targeting and harvesting mature bucks. So stay tuned. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Truths from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. As always, I am your host, Clint Campbell, and joined by the one, the only, Johnny Utah Mulligan, coming to us hot and live from Iowa. How's it going, man? What's up, brother? Hot and live hot in Iowa. And, hot and live from Iowa. That sounds like a like a rat record, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it could, it could the, that, that would be the the greatest hits album that's played in like the tilt the world the local fair <laughs> they always the, the tilt dude the world. with the mullet playing with the happy trail like joe dirt you know oh yeah full on man like the tilt the world always had like the best the best like just like i always called it butt rock you know what i mean like i don't know why i called it butt rock but it was like like rat and like poison and quiet riot like that was all like i called it butt rock and they always had like the best butt rock music on the planet like i would usually just stand at the tilt world before i would ride it because i can't really ride it because i don't do the rides that do do circles I'll, I'll get sick. <laughs> so i would just sit and like watch you know as like friends wrote it and just like rock out you know which is probably kind of creepy in hindsight you know the guy that just stands by the ride <laughs> well the fact that you had your bandana tied around your knee and you were playing the air guitar the whole time <laughs> Putting out the vibe, oh, it yeah. might have been a little creepy. Man. Yeah, just yeah. saying, <laughs> oozing vibe, man, just oozing vibe. I haven't been to a good, right. I haven't been to a good fair in a while though. Actually, it's a, I don't know, like there's a really good one back home. You know, I would go just about every year, but I don't know that there's one around. I imagine Iowa probably has a pretty good fair. 
Yeah, I didn't. Um, I you know I didn't go to it last year, and I didn't go to it this year. But yeah, it's over. I, I guess over in Des Moines and big state fair. It's supposed to be huge. Like I think somebody said, it's actually the biggest of all the state fairs. Um, nice. So nonetheless, no, I, I haven't been to it. Um, I've been to a few of the small town festivals. You know, right? Yeah, those that's are- um, that's always you know pretty decent for a, a good time and potential good laughs. Right. Yeah, exactly. The, uh, yeah, I haven't been to one in a while. A little known fact is I actually played with rat at one point. I shared a stage with rat. Sweet. So let, yeah. Let that sink in for a minute. Just let that. Yeah. <laughs> and not to be outdone. I then also shared a stage. I don't know. It might've been in the same month with, uh, Blackie Lawless and Wasp shared a stage with them too, which was amazing because the bass player was so drunk that his his bass tracks were on back tracks, so his bass wasn't yeah. even plugged in. <laughs> and he was he didn't st- know it, and he didn't know it. No, and he was just completely rocking out, like just you know, just getting it. And like he's, I'm watching. Like I didn't realize it at first until like I'm watching him play, and I'm like man, I was like, how is he, like, he's hammered. I watched him walk on the stage and like, they basically had to help him on stage. And I was like, dude, I don't know how that guy's going to play. And he gets up there and I'm watching him watching. I was like, man, it just doesn't look like he's like his timing's right, but everything sounds okay. And I'm like, looking, looking. And then I see like, there's nothing plugged in his, his, uh, his wireless pack is turned off. Like there's no lights on it. And his hands are completely like from the note placements and stuff like that. His hands aren't even making sense with what's being played. And I was like, that's amazing. The guy's just completely out of his mind, but he's rocking out having a good time. Fans thought he was killing it. So <laughs> it was all that was pre Millie Vanilli. Yeah. Well, though, no, oh, man, I'm not that old. This was actually in a, what, what year was this? Uh, Probably 2005, maybe. I think we played. We played with them. Yeah, we used to play. We played. Oh. Yeah, so it was. It was you know before they were all dead. I think, I don't know if they're dead any or if they are dead or not. I might just be saying that and being kind of a jerk. But um, yeah, they, it, <laughs> it was on one of their many um, re re reunion tours. Of um, we ran out of drug money. We should probably do another tour. That's probably what that was. So yeah, I was going to say they, if they're not dead, um, you know, if somebody saw him, they're like, wow, look at that old rocker, man. He's like 90 years old and he's still playing. They're like, no, he's 35. Yeah. He's 35. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I do remember. I remember the, the shocking part was Blackie, Blackie Lawless was walking out. And this is after I saw the super drunk bass player and Blackie Lawless is walking out. And I'm like, you know, the, he's walking down the stairs and he comes over to side stage where I was standing and he walks up and I just remember being shocked and I, I'm pretty sure like I was staring at him because, you know, he's he's an older fella. He's in like these skin tight leather pants that looked like someone painted them on him. Like they were so tight, like they were going to have to cut him out. And it wasn't a good look, you know, it wasn't like, and I was like, mm, man, hanging on, hanging on. Like I was, I just looked at my buddy. I was like, man, if I ever hang on like that at some point in my life, just hit me or just put me out of my misery. I was like, because I don't want to be 65 wearing leather pants. You know, I was like, it's just, it's just not a good, not a good look. There wasn't nothing going on that was good, but people were eating it up, man. They were, they were loving it. They were, they killed it and it was a good time. And 
Um, yeah, so I played with Walsh. Because the same Walsh. people that were at that fair to see them in 05 <laughs> also saw them in 82. <laughs> right. Yeah, man. The median age of that of that concert was uh, was old enough to be my grandparents almost at that point. Yeah. <laughs> um, there were some people that were pretty ate up, you know what I mean, where I was just like, ooh. I like, I was <laughs> looking out of the crowd, you're like, man, I bet in like 79 you were, you were hot. But. It's yeah, a, <laughs> you yeah. know, and they still think they are. Oh yeah, that's okay. That's yeah, all right. Okay. Hey man, live it, live your life. You know, let let it eat. Do what you got to do, man. You know, but they were those people were loving it. But uh, so we should probably get on to some some deer hunting. I could go on, you know, band, you know, talk for for hours of ri- ridiculous stuff that I've seen and heard over the course of, the, of time. But I definitely want to get into some uh to some white tail talk and. uh and see what has been going on in the, uh, in the in the timber for you. And then, of course, I have a, a story to share. But let's get an update from Iowa first, man. I know that you were just in the timber, um, you know, hopping out of the out of your stand and uh, to dial in for us to to do this quick record. But uh, how was this evening? And how was your uh, your days in the timber since the last time we talked? Uh, well, today was um, you know I should have gone this morning. It. Um, you know, looking at the forecast, they were calling for rain through the night. And, um, I woke up in the middle of the night at like two and and it was getting with it pretty good. You know, it was raining pretty good. And, and I looked at my phone to look at the update and they were saying, you know, we're going to have rain through like eight thirty, nine o'clock in the morning. So I'm like, you know what, <sighs> turning the alarm off. So turning the alarm off and slept in, of course, sleeping in for me is like 7 a.m. So when I get up at 7 a.m., um, it's done raining. And I'm like, seriously? Which, of course, now it's it's already daylight and, you know, right. all that kind of stuff. So um, so I ended up going this, uh, this evening to the place that I wanted to go this morning. Same wind. Haven't sat that in an evening yet. Kind of check it out. But uh, I had a little uh, I had a little three by three come mm-hmm. walking by. Um, to the point I actually had to lean forward over my stand to keep eyes on him as he walked underneath my tree. Uh, so that was kind of cool. Um, you know, any, I don't care if it's a doe, if it's a raccoon, like anytime an animal is a foot off the base of your tree and Mm -hmm. doesn't know you're there, it's cool. You know? Yeah, exactly. Um, so it was just a little buck, man, there were some does that came out. So tonight was fairly, but it was still, you know, uneventful as far as shooters go. But, um, Last, uh, I was at a trade show doing some Wicked Tree Gear stuff all this past week uh, down in Louisville. Uh, what what the ATA show is to the hunt uh, bow hunting industry, uh, there's a show called the GIE show, and that would be the equivalent to lawn and garden landscape industry. Right. So... For anybody that's uh, listening to the podcast that's been to the ATA or, or seen pictures and video from the ATA, um, this show makes the ATA look like a flea market. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a derogatory way. That's just the best way to put it, you know, quite wow. frankly. But um, huge international show, so it was, it was really busy, and it's a big show for, for us with Wicked. and. So I was at that, so I, I didn't get to do a lot of hunting, um, but I did go the day before I w- left for the show, and I did get to see one of my shooters on the hoof um, at about 150 yards out, and um, he was um, 
he was in a bean field and our, you know, our beans are, are way brown. They've been brown. Um, and the majority of the bean fields are actually already out. And this bean field is now out. Um, but on Monday it was still there. Um, yeah. So I saw him and I saw a couple other small bucks. Um, I had a, I had a 140 class buck, um, that I actually passed at 32 yards. He stood broadside for about two minutes at 32 yards in the, in the middle of the bean plot. (laughs) And I'm like, ah, yeah. Did you, did you have an internal, internal battle waging? Uh, you know, last year, um, my first year in Iowa. Sure. You know, mm-hmm. a 140, um, you know, is a, is a great, is a great buck. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, judged him up and he was definitely, uh, just a three-year-old mm-hmm. and he, uh, he needs at least another year to reach maturity and maybe a couple more years, you know, to see what, cause I do think this deer has good potential. He has really, really long beams. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think if he can kind of fill in some time length in there, mm-hmm. um, he's got, he's got potential to be a really cool deer. So that was nice. cool to see him and it was cool to let him go. Um, but yeah, the passing, passing the one thirty fives, one forties, one forty fives, um, it's getting, it, it, it is getting easier and easier uh, the longer I'm out here. Right. Yeah, for sure. What about, did you have, so you saw your shooter, have you had him, I guess, let me ask this, this, this is the first time you've seen him on stand, right? Yep. Yeah. And did you have, a? were you able to get him on trail camera pretty often or is he a guy that just kind of shows yeah. up later in the year? No, he, uh, so he's showing up on a new property that I picked up and there's actually three, there's three shooters on there, uh, on that property. And he's one of the three, um, you know, I ran cameras there all summer and never, never had a picture of him. And I did my, um, I did my Mrs. Dopey landmine, uh, did a mock scrape. And within three hours I had a trail camera picture of him and I'm like, well, where have you been, you know, all right. summer, you know, <laughs> I'm like, how can I get all these pictures of all these deer? And then, uh, finally, bam, I get a picture of him. So, um, that always lasts for about two or three seconds. And then I go back to, well, at least I got a picture of him. I know he's there and I'm happy. But um, now that the mock scrapes and other scrapes are opening up and getting more active, now I'm getting pictures of him on multiple scrapes on that property and a lot more regular. Now, granted, most of my trail camera pictures, you know, are, you know, evening activities. I mean, I'm getting... Uh, I am getting some 8 p.m., 9 p.m., but then I'm also getting some 3 a.m. and that, you know, that kind of stuff. But right. um, seeing him on the hoof in daylight hours was was super cool. Um, nice. And there's there's two other deer, uh, like I said, that are that are shooters on that property. And uh, I'm getting pictures of all of them very, very uh, active, you know, at least once a day. I'm getting them on um, one or more scrapes. Nice. So that's a good sign. We'll see. We'll see how things go. That property has a lot of potential. It does, uh, so far it's proven to be more of a morning property than an evening property. Okay. So we'll see if that continues. Yeah. And then there should be, I haven't sat my personal property yet at all. Okay. Yeah. I remember we were talking about that and you said that kind of turns on here later, later in the year and it sounds, or later in the season, it sounds like, or at least whenever I was looking at the forecast, I, I know for around here and heading a little further west toward, you know, Ohio, 
it looks like this coming weekend that, you know, the classic weekend of the 28th, 29th, you know, getting into the Halloween time looks like is going to be pretty good with temperatures and stuff like that. Is that kind of holding true for you guys as well? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And um, one of my big bucks on my personal property um, is a buck that I called Dalton, uh, going back to my love of the movie Roadhouse. Um, <laughs> so I've got a I've got a Patrick Swayze um, character named Dalton. Nice. And last year he was a solid upper 60s class deer, um, four to five last year. So he'll be five to six this year. Um and nonetheless, um, I, I didn't get pictures of him um, until October 29th. I had pictures of him all day long. Of course, I was hunting another property hard um, during during that time frame. And it was like November 1st that I checked cameras. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, he did, like literally didn't leave my personal property for a full 24 to 36 hours. But... Um, and then he cycled back through around November, uh, I think it's November t- 10th, 11th, and 12th. Hmm. Um, I had him really, really solid. So hmm. uh, maybe he'll do the same thing. I mean, I know what his favorite scrapes were last year. Hmm. Um, he's the one that created those scrapes, and he was the only person on those scrapes, hmm. um, which was kind of interesting. Yeah. But um so anyways, we'll see. Um, I've already got a camera moved in into position already over that licking branch. And hopefully he, um, hopefully he comes back through again. But, uh, next week I'm going to actually, uh, actually, well, this week coming up, um, I'm going to start venturing over to, uh, some public ground. I'm going to start doing some, some more run and gun stuff here to kind of close out this lull uh, as we get ready to move into some pre-rut activity, which I'm definitely seeing a lot of right now here in Iowa. Nice. Yeah. For me, I, uh, it's really weird, man. Cause you know, I usually, um, I'm usually not done this early in the year (laughs) to be, to be Mm -hmm. honest. Um, you know, so it's a little bit, you know, um, having to try to get used to what do I do with my, my weekends and, and stuff now. Um, you know, kind of part of me is kind of bummed cause I like this t- hunting this time of year mm-hmm. coming up, obviously like the, the pre-rut here, even if it's in, you know, PA and, um, like to try to get back to our farm and stuff like that and, and spend some time there hunting there. Um, but there's, that's just not going to be in the cards. I'll be headed to, um, Ohio, of course, there the second week of, no, so I'll even like two weeks for Ohio and be there for like eight or nine days, which I'm looking forward to. So that'll be like the fourth through the 13th, I think. But, you know, I was lucky enough last week where, you know, I was able to shoot a, a Pennsylvania eight point on a small parcel, which was really cool. And, you know, I know everyone, you know, that for those that are, that are following the podcast have heard me talk about the, the deer lucky. And I know John, you and I had talked about him and stuff. And, you know, I had been following him for, you know, two years, I guess. And, you know, I kind of alluded to like the idea that I had a, an epiphany, I guess you could say, or a change of heart, if you will, you know, that Saturday. And it was kind of weird because I was just, you know, I was chasing that deer and it's the challenge for me is this, is that, you know, I live three hours from the property that that deer lives on, right. Work a normal guy job. So for me to get back to hunt him, you know, is, is difficult even whenever there is good weather but to really hunt him, it's like, I have to almost have like the best weather fall on every weekend, you know, which is, you know, it's, you're just, it's a crap shoot, right? It's, if it doesn't fall on a weekend then I usually don't go hunt cause I'm not going to go hunt and, you know, blow up a spot on a, on a bad weather day. 
So I was looking at the forecast, sure. you know, as I was looking at the forecast, of course, I saw them opening week or opening weekend because I had a nice cold front come through that opening weekend. And then the cold fronts all kind of landed right around the weekends and nothing on, you know, Friday, Saturday. It was all like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It was usually like the, the good weather days. And as I kind of like looked at the forecast, it looked like I wasn't going to have a good weather weekend coming up. So I was getting kind of bummed out. Of course, you know, and I don't live close to the property where I can hunt them in the evenings and stuff like that and was getting kind of annoyed. And uh, I, was, I was planning to go hunt with a buddy of mine on this small parcel. It was like, you know, it was going to be a little warm and, you know, it's like I'll go out and I'll hunt there and that way I'm not blowing up any spots that I really want to hunt later. And uh, my wife had her car in the garage, of course, and so I was dropping her off before I was going to meet my buddy for the evening hunt. And that day was just like a scramble because I was taking care of a bunch of stuff around the house and, you know, got all my stuff packed and got them in the truck and got them over to the, the dealership. And as I'm driving, I'm like, man, I was like, I forgot this. I forgot this. I forgot this. I forgot all my cameras. And my wife was just, she looked at me. She's like, why don't you just go hunt, leave all the crap at home? She was like, don't take any of it. She's like, it stresses you out anyway. She's like, so just go be in a tree stand and just enjoy being in the tree. Right. And what I, I was thinking that of that conversation as I was driving out to hunt and was realizing, you know, it's like, I'm fortunate that, you know, that I have a bunch of good buddies and, you know, I'm able to have, you know, the podcast and do the podcast with you and a bunch of my buddies, you know, such as, you know, you, you know, are able to, you know, have the flexibility, I guess you could say that, you know, you, you might live close to the areas that you hunt or you live in Iowa or, or you know, if you're chatting those guys from Exodus, you live in um, Ohio and stuff um, where part of your job really is to be out there doing it. You know what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. And I realized that I was trying, I was setting an expectation for myself that was almost not achievable, right? Because I wanted to be able to have the flex, that same flexibility and kind of the same type of experience, but I live in a completely different state with completely different circumstances. You know what I mean? And I've talked about it before where, you know, one of the, I think one of the most important things you can do in hunting is making sure that you set expectations that are reasonable for your circumstances, where you live, the caliber of deer you can hunt, how often you can get out to hunt and things of that nature. Otherwise you're going to drive yourself crazy. You know what I mean? Um, sure. It's, you know, it's the whole thing of, you know, you see all these big deer on social media and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden you think that, you know, especially if you follow Don Higgins, <laughs> you know, you think like, man, that guy's killing two, 200 inch deer in, in a week. It's like, that must be what I should be doing. Um, and it can really kind of stretch you out, <laughs> can really kind of stretch yeah. you out and bum you out. You know what I mean? And it was getting to that yeah. point for me where I was just, I was, I was trying to do things that weren't, weren't manageable or reasonable or a reasonable expectation for me. Could I hunt a deer and pattern a deer? Maybe if I find one around here to hunt, sure. You know what I mean? It's like I found one back at the farm to pattern and got on him, and it was going to be a cool hunt if I could actually get back to hunt him often enough, but that just wasn't going to be the case. So as I got out there, you know, I was driving and, and got to the, the property and was putting my stand up, and as I was putting my stand up, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to hunt today, and if I see a deer that walks out that uh, interests me and I have a, a clean shot opportunity, I'm going to take it. You know, I was like, because I want to – Part of it was is I needed to make sure that hunting was still fun for me. You know what I mean? Like it was getting like I needed to have that fun, just like that. No pressure being in the stand. And if something makes your heart rate jump, then it's right. You know what I mean? And 
Got in the stand, set up my lone wolf. It was the most crooked setup I've ever set up in my entire life. It was like the tree was so crooked. The stand was so crooked when I got into it. It was one of those things where you get into the tree and you're just like, I can't believe I set this stand up. And then it was like, am I going to fix it? I'm like, well, I'm not going to waste my time and fix it. Went to pull my bow up. My bowstring got caught on all my arrows as I pulled them up and ripped out every arrow of my quiver except for one. So I had literally had my bow and one arrow in the tree and the rest of my arrows were laying at the bottom of the stand or at the bottom of the tree. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So I was like, this hunt's going to be a bust anyway. I'm sitting there and this little buck, <laughs> this little buck walks out in front of me and I'm like, okay, cool. It's kind of like what you were talking about. A little a deer, you know, or any animal getting that close to your tree kind of gets you excited little spike walks out and he comes right up underneath me. He's at, I ranged him. He's at like eight yards with working this licking branch and scratching himself and just kind of poking around. He looks right at me and didn't see me. And he walked out to this little micro plot that I had planted uh, on this par- property. And this is a three acre parcel that butts up to, to public land in Eastern PA. So it's crazy pressure out in that area. Um, do a lot of, you know, a lot of folks go, you know, a season and, and maybe don't see deer out that way. Um, I'm sitting there, I watched that buck, he goes away and I saw a doe earlier that I didn't have a shot opportunity at. And I'm sitting there and I hear something kind of scraping or, or rubbing a tree. It's at least what it sounded like, but the leaves were really wet. So I couldn't really tell. And I just happened to look to my right and this buck pops out and he's got, you know, just crap all in his antlers. You know what I mean? Like where you could tell he was, he was raking a tree and was like ripping up some brush and stuff like that. And he's walking around, he's about 20 yards away from me. I didn't have a shot opportunity. I'm sitting there and my heart kind of got going. It was, it was an eight point, you know, and I was like, and I just kind of told myself, I was like, this is the guy. I was like, I'm excited. I'm pumped up. I was like, if he gives me a shot opportunity, I'm going to take it. Well, sure enough, he followed the same trail that that little buck followed previously. So that little buck gave me a nice little dress rehearsal, you know, for the route that he was going to take. He walked eight yards in front of me. I drew back, mouth bleated, stopped him and put it in, a, in his boiler room. He kicked, took off, ran 40 yards, piled up and, uh, went and got him and, and, uh, had to take care of him kind of quickly cause it was warm. But, uh, I was pumped, man. It was one of those things where it wasn't really what I thought the season was going to, or the Pennsylvania season was going to turn out to be. I had different set of expectations earlier in the year. Um, but I'm, I'm glad I kind of had that conversation with my wife and she set me straight because it was an awesome hunt. I had a blast and uh, was able to take a nice uh, Pennsylvania eight point on, you know, some tough, tough land that, you know, land it's hard to tough on a small parcel, you know, butted up against some public land. So I was super stoked and we have meat in the freezer and I just bought a meat grinder. So I'm pretty pumped about that. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Yeah. So it was, uh, it wasn't what I had planned for the year, of course. Um, but it just, you know, it just felt right, man. I don't know. It was one of those things where, you know, it, it was almost like a relief, which was really weird that I just kind of was like, you know what, I'm just going to hunt and have fun. And, sure, you know, and I think that, you know, I'm not, you know, it's, I'm trying to figure out how to say this, but, you know, I'm not, I guess, the only person that runs into those types of things. You know, I know that there's plenty of other people out there that get frustrated as well. You know, and I guess my unsolicited advi- solicited advice would be is just have fun and hunt hunt what makes you happy. And hunt what makes you yeah. feel good. You know what I mean? Because at the end of the day, I mean, that's really why we go out into the timber, right? I mean, it's like if you're not having sure. fun and you're not having a good time, then, you know, I'm not sure why we have the 3.30 a.m. wake-up calls and the sit in the, in the rain and the cold. And, um, you know, so that was my way of just kind of making sure that I'm grounded in why I should be doing this or why I do this in the first place. 
Yeah. Well, you know, and, and I, dude, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, 2013, I set my heart, uh, on a, on a, one particular buck and was committed that I said, you know, I'm, I'm only going to hunt that deer and, um, saw it, you know, had one encounter with him, didn't, but wasn't able to get a shot. Uh, for the next couple of days I panicked, you know, like in my, that may be my only opportunity at him and I may never get him. Um, ultimately I did, um, 2014 picked a buck, Johnny cash, mm-hmm. one particular deer that I had my heart set on. Uh, I ended up killing him on the fourth encounter before I was ever able to get a, get a shot off on him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, I killed him on October 4th and, and panic was already setting in, you know, I right. knew if we got into rut, he was probably going to disappear. Right. Um, 2015 season, I had three encounters with a particular buck, um, a buck I called Michelangelo and it was a, uh, giant mega mega Kentucky giant mm-hmm. and um, had three encounters with him didn't get it done um, he ultimately did get killed in the rut three miles from where I was hunting him hmm. and that was the season where I almost like I know exactly what you're talking about I mean I really let the stress and the pressure kind of get to me to have my heart set on one particular deer and um, obsessed about him and obsessed about him. And, and I get it. Sure, we, we're always all going to have there, – there's going to be deer that we're going to try to target or we're going to pinpoint or this is a deer that I've got a lot of history with and it would be really cool to complete the mission, the story, the have closure to it. Right. That's always going to happen. Um, but, you know, I got into a kind of a funk um, and I put a lot of pressure on myself. And even my wife, she said, like, look, this is getting out of hand. Right. Um, you know, this is uh, this is like it, it is literally destroying you. Like it's you know, you've never been like this. This isn't why you hunt in the first place. Right. Um, how It doesn't you know, there is no way that you're actually having fun this right. season. Right. And I'm like, I'm not. Right. You know, I was like, I'm not having fun. I was like, I just want to I want to I want to kill that deer. Yeah. Um. And, and I had built it up so much to the point where, yes, I, I wasn't having fun. And and the thing that helped me the most was whenever I heard that he got killed, there's the immediate and, you know, there's the, oh, crap. Oh, right. screw it. My season's over. I'm done. This, I, you know, I just, I'm not even going to hunt anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but, you know, I snapped out of that and I'm like, well, you know, my, my, you know, my target buck uh, is gone. I haven't actually seen any other deer that I really want to shoot any mature deer, you know, that I want to shoot. So Mm -hmm. I was just hunting to hunt Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, was ultimately, um, a deer, the deer that I ended up killing that year. I called the new guy Mm because I went and did a card pool on a scrape and I'm like, Hey, who's this buck? This is a new guy. Never seen him before. So his name became the new guy. And, um, I, I set up in an area where I thought I could intersect him and I was able to kill him the first time I saw him on the hoof, but he was not a targeted buck. Right. Um, so, uh, last year, same kind of deal. I had a couple of different deer that I wanted to chase. And of course I set up my tree stands that places that I thought would give me a advantageous, you know, opportunity at those. Um, but no, man, I get what you're saying. And, um, 
it, it can get, it can wear you out and it can take the fun completely out of hunting. Um, I, we're all, you and you're a goal oriented person. I'm a goal oriented yeah. person. Um, you know, that's one thing, but to put that much pressure to where hunting doesn't become fun anymore. Yeah. It sucks. You know, I've been there, you've been there and I guarantee 90% of the people listening to the podcast, they've been there at some point in their life with hunting. It happens. Yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, it was just a nice reminder, you know, of that conversation with my wife of, of, you know, I, 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 the funny thing was I would have had the best film that I would have ever gotten on a hunt. Like it would, it would have been perfect because he was standing right there in front of me. Like it would have been perfect, but mm-hmm. I kind of feel like it's probably part of the reason why he showed up, you know what I mean? It's in, like in some weird hippie kind of way that, you know, it was like one of those things where it was, I was just there to enjoy the moment and be in the moment. And, uh, and, sure. you know, and he was presented there to kind of fulfill, you know, that whole, I guess, kind of story. The other cool part of it is, is that property, it's like I hunted once during late season last year and I was on the property once this spring. So I really didn't know much about it. Um, other than those two kind of walkthroughs and, and I picked a good stand location, you know, it's like I went in and I did put a little, uh, micro plot in or my buddy did, I kind of gave him the stuff to do it and he did the, did the planning and stuff cause I couldn't get out to help him. But, uh, you know, I kind of chose where those spots should be and, you know, I knew what tree I needed to be in. I, actually, I think even, I don't know if I mentioned this to you or not, man, but it's, this is the first year for me that I'm using the, uh, lone wolf assault, uh, before I was using mm-hmm. the climber. And if it weren't yep. for that stand, it's like, I would not have been in that tree. Cause there was not one single climbable tree in that whole area. I wouldn't even, I probably wouldn't have even yep. seen deer that day. Um, you yep. know, but it's just one of those things where that stand just lets me get into any, pretty much any trees. It's small, um, lightweight, and, uh, you know, easy to set up and I can kind of get it in between branches if I need to, cause the, the base isn't real big. Um, you know, so it's, if it weren't for that, I don't know that I would have even saw that deer cause I definitely wouldn't have been in that tree. Um, yeah, but yeah, so overall, well, you man, know, and that, that's one of those situations too, like in you and I've talked about, um, you know, I started working with lone wolf back in 2013 and, and I switched over, uh, for the, for that purpose, you know, I pick, I pick locations that I want to hunt. I don't yeah. pick trees that I want to hunt. So fortunately with lone wolves, you can get those things in any tree that, that is there. Yeah. Um, so you don't have to go tree shopping. You can go um, tree stand placement shopping instead. Yeah, exactly. Cause I knew what, what area I wanted to be in. Um, and I just need, and, and you know, there were a handful of trees that were there and all of them were, you know, none of them were going to be anything that was going to be easy to get into. Um, but there was one particular tree is the one I really wanted to be in. That was the one I ended up, you know, putting my stand in and I ended up only using three sticks. And I think I was maybe, I mean, I might've been 10 feet off the ground, maybe, um, you know, so, and it's kind of a swampy area. So it's, you know, all the foliage around there is about, you know, deer height. Everything's about four foot high. So it's a deer's world in that area. Um, which was nice, but yeah. So the rest of the year, man, I'm just going to kind of use or, you know, what's left of this portion of the season before I leave for Ohio, I'm going to kind of use this time to do some scouting and just do some observation sits on some of the public land around here and see if I can't start figuring some things out for, for next year and start putting a game plan together to, you know, to hunt some different areas next year. And I think my goal next year is to hunt even more here on the East coast versus going back to the farm. Um, just because it'd be nice to have some, you know, more places close to home that I can get to and, uh, and hunt without having to drive the the distance to get back to the farm. So that I think is my goal, my early, you know, what, 2018 goal 
is to uh is to learn more about some of the public land around here than I do at the moment to uh to have better better hunting opportunities in this area. So that is uh Sure. That's the plan, man. But uh, if there, if you have any other updates, let's uh, let's do that. Otherwise, it's uh, we have Don uh, Donnie Wilson on the line to uh, to talk about some big deer that he's killed. So uh, if uh, if we have nothing else to share, let's go ahead and dial him up. Yeah, yeah, and you know, man, it's it's you know having uh, having a podcast with Donnie. Um, Donnie and I have been super super close, good buddies for several years, and. Um, I have a feeling that everything we talk about I, him and I've probably already talked about at some point um, right. today, but it's just, and it's, and it's cool to hear it a second time. It's um, Donnie's one of those guys, man. He, um, he doesn't geek out over a lot of technology. Mm-hmm. He keeps it simple. He's a, he's a topo guy. He's a betting area guy. He's um, hunt the right days, hunt the right times. And um, you know, Hey, go in there and if it happens it happens if it doesn't it doesn't and you know you get to try again but uh kind of a no-nonsense guy and and i and i, and I like that about donnie but he is he is a big buck killer yeah for the sure dude, uh, yeah i mean we definitely we talked about two of his previous ones and then you know this of course um we got on the phone with with donnie you know prior to uh him uh, taking the deer that he took this year and he took uh he took a dandy uh, an adam's yes. giant if you will yep Yep. Yep. He can, he can spot them. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. I need to, uh, I need to get whatever, whatever the juju that guy has, I need that to rub off on me a little bit. That'd be, be nice <laughs> to get, get a little bit of that, but, uh, without further yeah, ado, no let's go ahead and get uh Donnie on the line. Before we get Donnie on the line, let's take a quick moment to hear about our partners at Whitetail Institute of North America. As you all know by now, I've been using Whitetail Institute products for several years, and you've heard me talk about the larger plots I use on our family farm. But today, I wanted to share my experience that I've had with micro plots this past year. This year, I decided to hunt a small three-acre parcel that is adjacent to a large tract of public land and a farm that doesn't allow hunting. Now, this is also taking place in a super high-pressure area of eastern Pennsylvania. Uh, this three acres is, is by and large a transition area for the deer with very little bedding and that it, this is really the route that they take to and from bed and food. I used Whitetail Institute of North America's bow stand to create a microplot, maybe 20 feet by 20 feet. Bow stand is designed to work in hard to reach areas with less than ideal soil conditions and reduced light exposure. This microplot is not intended to be the prime food source, only to slow down visiting deer long enough to provide a shot opportunity. And that is exactly what this did or this plot did this past weekend when I harvested my Pennsylvania buck. He was stopping at a licking branch on the edge of the food plot on his way to his nighttime feeding destination. Products like bow stand are designed to tip the odds in our favor in hard to hunt places. If you're hunting areas like this small parcel, then I encourage you to consider tactics like using microplots. And if you'd like to learn more about Whitetail Institute of North America products, visit them at whitetailinstitute.com. And now back to the show. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell. And today, John and I are joined by uh, another friend of John's, a good buddy of his, uh, Donnie Wilson. Some of you may know him from, you know, I've, I've seen some of his his work and some of the Sitka gear emails that have gone out. You may notice some uh, some ruckus photos of him at uh, outdoor conventions, which looks like the guy's always having a good time at those things. Um, he's obviously a, a big deer hunter, uh, is uh, a, the head guide at 
Real McCoy Outdoors, Sitka Whitetail Ambassador. And from what I can tell from what John tells me, an all-around good guy, but we'll let that be uh, to be yet determined during the course of this podcast. But uh, Donnie, thanks for coming on the show, and uh, how you doing this evening? Doing great. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, super stoked to have you on. I know uh, uh, I've been kind of following you for a while, liking some of your stuff on Instagram and, and, and Facebook and, and so forth. And uh, I, have, I have a sense of a little bit of who you are, I guess, you know, just from talking to John and, and, and following you a little bit. For, but for those out there that are listening that aren't quite as familiar with who you are and kind of how you came to kind of get involved in the outdoor industry, if you wouldn't mind, give us a little bit of background about yourself, where you're from, how you started hunting and what you do for a living. Um, well, what I do for a living, I own a concrete um, company here in Dayton, Ohio. Um, I got started hunting, uh, like most people, with my father. Uh, we started hunting down in uh, Kentucky on a family farm. I kind of started bow hunting on my own. My dad wasn't a bow hunter. So uh, I liked the challenge of the bow hunting, so I turned to bow hunting. Uh, got kind of lucky on a big deer. And that big deer turned me into a big deer hunter. And I've done that for 25 years now. Um, killed a couple good deer, really good deer. Uh, started guiding, kind of based on that. Some people started talking about me, and um guy asked me if I wanted to guide for him. So I did that for a few years. And stayed in touch with uh, the guys at Real McCoy, over the years and then I started guiding for those guys now I'm their head guide um, I've been their head guide this is the fifth year I've been their head guide um, we hunt I think the McCoys own about 10,000 acres we hunt about three to 4,000 and we lease the other properties um, we stay pretty busy and we, we do pretty good on, on big deer in Ohio Nice. So, what part of uh, what part of Ohio is that in? Uh, we hunt Adams County, Ohio. Adams County, and so just for those out there listening that might not be as familiar with the geography, is that extreme uh, southern Ohio? Yeah, South Central, like right in the middle of the state, South Central. Nice. Yeah, they definitely have some good deer down in that area. I think this year might be the first year that I make a a trip close to that region. I've hunted usually up around, um, the Conshocton kind of area in the past. Um, but this year I might venture a little further South. That's some rugged terrain down there, man. You got some, some pretty, uh, nasty pools as far as Hills are concerned. Yeah. It's, it's kind of split in like 50, 50, like the, uh, Western part of the County is pretty flat in agriculture. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the Eastern part and man, it is, it is rough country for Ohio. It's rough country for anywhere. It's it's steep, hilly, but you know there's a lot of timber, and we feel that that rough country gives these big deer, you know, a place to grow old. And geez, you just never know what's going to walk out down there. Right, and that's the one thing I think that I noticed. Just you know, I spent a little time this summer in that you know kind of region, scouting a little bit, and. Uh, that was the one thing that the buddies I was hanging out with were kind of telling me that, you know, you it's big timber. You may not see at least where this is public ground, of course, that we're I'm, I'm talking about as far as, you know, where I'll be headed possibly this year. But you know, it was like, you're not going to get run over with deer necessarily. He was kind of explaining to me, he was like, but he said he's, he's rarely been to a place that kind of supported the type of age structure that he was seeing in there. And I, and you're, I think you're exactly right. It's just that, that rough terrain. It's like, <laughs> 
I'm not quite sure who would want to make some of those hikes in in the morning that, or, that, or or take a late evening shot to try to do a track and, and drag out the you know in some of that country. So I can definitely see how those deer get age on them in that region for sure. Yeah, that's that's totally it. I, there's just places where you know you're not going to go, and deer will go there, and they can hide out and grow old. You know, we we kill seven and eight year old deer sometimes. You know, old deer and that's the main thing to grow big deer. They got to be old. That's all right. Yeah. yeah. I don't know that I've ever seen a seven or an eight year old deer. This year is the first year actually on our PA farm that, uh, I do some just habitat management with my family and stuff there. This, this year I'm after a four year old and it's the first four year old I can ever remember having on the farm. Um, you know, Pennsylvania is pretty notorious for having two and a half year old and maybe a three and a half year old if you're lucky. But, uh, so I'm pretty excited for this year to be able to chase a, a four year old, but this time of year, you know, what, being a guide, like, of course, you mentioned, you know, you own your own company and so forth. You know, what does your schedule look like this time of year? Like, how do you balance owning your own company, being a head guide at Real McCoy Outdoors? And then, and I know you're a big family guy, too, just from, you know, following you on social media and stuff like that. How do you manage to pack all that in this time of year? I have zero time. <laughs> <laughs> so I, my, my calendar is full. You know, my days are busy at, at work and my weekends are full with soccer and and then trying to get this deer hunting thing up and running. October is probably my busiest month. We we get super busy at work. Everybody's trying to get everything done before winter. And then we get busy down there um, at the McCoys, trying to get everything ready for the hunters. And soccer and basketball kind of conflict. Mm-hmm. So it is busy. It's a busy time of year. Right now, are you spending this time of year? Are you in the timber a ton for the for the guiding service, or has your work kind of been done and you're just kind of waiting for the hunters to show up to camp now? Yeah, we have a lot done by this time. Um, most of the stands, we'll go around at the end of the year and loosen straps on the stands, and then we check the stands. But they're all up. Shooting lanes are cut. We may have to touch up here and there, but most of that stuff's um, already taken care of. Um, we will run some trail cameras. We don't run a ton of trail cameras. We, we, we do do run some, but um, so most of the work's done, I would say. Right. So I think one of the things, you know, I think one of the, uh, I guess, mis- misconceptions or misperceptions of the outdoor industry just in general is a lot of people, a lot of people think that, you know, you work in the outdoor industry and it must be, in a, you know, it's a cool job, uh, no doubt, I'm sure. Um, but I think they think that you spend most of your time hunting and doing those types of things. I think John gave me a word of advice at one point was like, if you really want to spend time hunting, don't work in the outdoor industry. Um, but you know what? I think people, when they think of guides, it's like this glamorous job where you're spending all your time putting guys on stands and, um, you know, that that's the mainly the work that's going into it is that type of work. But, you know, give us a kind of a, a little bit of insight into what all goes into being a guide. I'm sure there's a lot more than meets the eye and a lot more than most people probably think. So, you know, what's the preseason work that you have going on? Like whether it's you're targeting specific deer to kind of get familiar with how deer are moving or how, where deer are bedding. Like, so what's a day, a day look like for you in the preseason? Well, guiding is definitely not a glamorous job. <laughs> it's, you know, once, when, when I first started guiding, I did it for a couple of years, and that outfitter would not let me hunt while I was guiding. And you know, I did it for a couple of years, and and decided that was not for me, right. because you you just don't get to hunt. If you like hunting, 
you definitely don't want to be a guide because you're not going to get to hunt. Um, maybe some big game guides. They're not necessarily hunting, but they are on on the guides. But I don't, I don't, you know, I don't go to the stand with the guys. I may take them and drop them off or show them to a stand, but I don't sit on stand with the guys. So, you know, I'm, I don't, I don't get to hunt with the guys. Um, this the McCoys. I do get to hunt. That's that's pr- part of what I get paid is properties to hunt. Right. Um, my normal day, um, you know, we're allowed to bait in Ohio. So we do a lot of corning, checking trail cameras, moving stands, um, all of what you think you would do, that's, that's what we're doing. The toughest part about guiding is dealing with different personalities you have to you have to figure out who you're who you're working with what they're looking for what their expectations are you know that's that's the toughest part is is just different people's personalities i would think one of the really difficult you know situations or things to manage is just someone who comes in with the um maybe a miscalculated expectation and you know i'm sure you've encountered this you know with someone getting upset where they didn't see the type of deer they wanted to see and and so on and so forth have you run into those types of situations oh all the time i mean you know guys come in for a five-day hunt you know the main thing to think about and remember is there's nothing more than i want than to put you on a deer that you want to kill right that's that's my main focus. It's not like I'm going to hold something back. I may hold a stand back for a couple of days if the weather's going to change, if I think you have a better chance. If I am holding a stand back, it's because I think you're going to have a better chance later on in the week. Um, so I'm all about putting people on, on, on big deer, but you know, you only have five days. And to think that you're going to come in to any outfitter in the country and kill something over 150 you know that's that's pretty high expectations you know mm-hmm. 150 is a big deer it's probably in the top 20 percent of deer in the country um so if we're 25 percent success in camp we're beating the odds right so you know it's tough yeah i mean and that's that's why they call it hunting too it's uh there's definitely yeah. nothing's a nothing's a sure shot that's for sure and uh 150 inch deer, man, that's, uh, you're right. I mean, that, that it's a huge deer. And I think sometimes, you know, people get caught up in maybe some stuff they see on TV or social media or whatever, and start to get, um, you know, a little bit of warped expectations of what, um, you know, what big deer are, you know what I mean? Like, cause you, you, you see a lot of folks, you know, posting things, whether, you know, whatever size the deer is, but they're usually giant deer. And you think that that's what the, the the bar is and it's just not the case you know it's like the it's those are the exceptions and not the rule i guess is what i'm trying to say um for sure and uh you know it's always i mean the minimum pope and young typical is 125 mm-hmm. if that doesn't say anything you know 125 inch deer that's that's a decent size a point that's a pretty good good size a point right. and that's the minimum um, record book Pope and Young entry is 125. So, you know, 150 inches is that's a big deer. Yeah, yeah. I had I I 
in Ohio last year, I took a, a Pope and Young, and that was, I was tickled with that with that deer. Um, it was the biggest sure. deer I ever killed, you know. So I was, I couldn't imagine another, you know, whatever it was, twenty more inches on top of the one that I on top of the one that I shot. That would have, uh, I may have had to spend a little bit more time in the stand to collect myself before I got down after that, possibly. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if if someone out there listening was considering looking into hunting with an outfitter, you know, what type of advice or things would you say that they should consider when, when kind of choosing one, like what are those kind of criteria you would, you would think that they should be looking into? I mean, you got to look at at success, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, some outfitters inflate that, you know, they're going to, they're going to include, um, sightings as success. Um, not just shot or kills. Some some outfitters will say shot opportunities. They you know they're they're running fifty percent of shot opportunities. But who's to say that's their shot opportunity or your shot opportunity? Right. You know, look at actual kills that you know that we've we've taken this many deer. We've had this many hunters. Um, I'm a big fan of small outfitters. I. I don't like the big outfitters that are running, you know, three or four or 500 guys a year. You know, it's tough to put guys on deer, you know, even if you have 15,000 to 20,000 acres, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't want to put down other outfitters, but it's tough to consistently put people on big deer when, when you're running that many guys, it's, it's just, you know, a nightmare trying to run that many stands. You, You have to run, you know, thousand stands, you know, it's, it's just tough. We, we have, I think we have nearly 60 stands throughout our, you know, three to 4,000 acres. And the most we hunt per week is eight guys, mm-hmm. you know, so we got 60 stands with eight guys and we're trying to keep guys on fresh stands and give these guys the best opportunities. But if you're running, two or three hundred guys to see you have you know 30 or 40 guys in camp a week you know it's it's a nightmare trying to get that many guys on deer right i would say you know look at look at how many people they're taking look at their success rate on kills um ask for references call people to tons tell them that you want references from guys that did not kill everybody's going to say if they killed a 150 inch deer, they're going to say, yeah, it was the best one I've ever been on. But the guy that you, that I'm trying to make happy is the guy that doesn't kill. Like I want that guy saying, you know what? I didn't kill. I had a great time. And those guys did everything they could to put me on a big deer. And I would go back based on that. That's, that's, that's what I want to hear. That's interesting. So how many, I'm just curious, like do you guys run or outfitters typically in general, uh, do you run the entire season, like from opening day to closing day of archery, and then maybe you open again for muzzleloader, or or there's select weeks that you're looking to put guys in stands, and that's really it during the course of the season? You know, it varies by outfitter. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't start hunting until the third week of October. Okay. Um, our season comes in this weekend, so the end of September, our bow season does, and it doesn't go out until the, the end of January. Um, we'll start hunting... Third week October, we'll run up until oh um, Thanksgiving, and then our we have a week long shotgun season that's the week after Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. 
But after that, we don't do much until late season. There's a late muzzleloader. Um, if we have some guys that are really wanting to come and bow hunt late season, we may do a few guys, but you know, we, we don't push a lot of guys through late season. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. Cause I would think that, you know, some of those early, early weeks, you know, unless you have like, you know, for instance, this weekend where you have a cold front that's coming through, it's probably not worth, um, may not be worth the time putting guys in stands during that, during that time. I would, I would suspect, you know, just as a normal hunter wanting to try to find the best conditions you possibly can to get on stand. It seems like the later you would wait, obviously is going to give you the better opportunities and get guys in stands where they can sit all day versus sitting just in an evening set. Um, Absolutely. Um, so one of the questions I had for you was, I know you mentioned that part of, as part of your gig, you know, you get an opportunity to hunt some of those, uh, the, the, the property that you're helping guide on and so forth. But how much, you know, with all the stuff that you have going on with your, your company and, you know, the guiding and, and you know, of course, family time and stuff like that, like how much are you actually getting out during the season to hunt? Would you say? Well, with my company, I'm on site until the third week, of October. And then I've kind of structured uh, my workload where I can leave. Uh, my guys can usually get a hold of me via phone or text um, if they have questions, but I'm able to leave. They still work. Um, so I'm able to get away. Uh, the guiding kind of holds me up a little bit on hunting, but, you know, if I have a tag in my pocket, that's that's my main focus is I want to kill a deer, right. you know, so that's why I do everything I do. That's why, that's why I started my company. I started a concrete company because I would get fall off. That's, yeah. you know, that's, that's why I did it. You know, that's, right. that's why I guide. That's, you know, that's why I do mostly everything I do. Right. Yeah. I gotta, I gotta look into one of those seasonal type of gigs like that. I think, uh, cause for me, it's man, it's, it's, it's tough. Yeah. I work the normal nine to five grind of it being in an office and, my weekends are really, you know, obviously when I get my action, uh, but in Pennsylvania, there's only, there's no Sunday hunting. So it's oftentimes during the course of a week, it's like, I might get a day in, you know, which just doesn't, which just doesn't do it. I think the, uh, I think my takeaway to this is I should start a concrete company of some sort. It sounds like that's more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's um, nice. I mean, I, I have the luxury of, of hunting when, you know, when I think is best, right. like, you know, I, I went and checked some trail cameras today. I didn't have any deer coming in in daylight. I'm probably going to go to some state land somewhere and hike in and just kind of hope to get lucky. Right. Yeah. Like I, I, I know some good state land and, you know, I've killed, I've killed a big deer on state land. I've, you know, I've done it before and, you know, it can happen. So I'll stay, save some of my farms for when it gets right. I, I just won't hunt them. Right. Yeah. I kind of, I, I take a similar approach where it's, you know, I live in Phil, I live near Philadelphia is where, you know, I live now and uh, I'll often hunt state land around here. Um, and, uh, a buddy's, a, a buddy of mine has a small property, well, like a super small, almost like suburb parcel. It's like three acres, but it butts up against state ground and I'll hunt that sometimes as well. But whenever the weather gets right, it's usually when I'll try to go back to our family farm and just do minimal sits on that farm to see if I can't kill a deer that I'm after specifically. And then of course I spent some time in November in Ohio, but it's a nice, it was a nice segue because I wanted to ask you is, you know, I know that you had mentioned you get to hunt the, 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 the property or the farms that you're helping to, or that you're guiding on, but you know, 
do you hunt a mix of, it sounds like you hunt a mix of private and public land. And, you know, what would you say that split is? Are you hunting predominantly private or predominantly public? What's, what do you, what do you say there? These days I'm 90% private. Okay. You know, I'll, I'll go into some state land here and there. Just if, if I don't think one of my farms is right, I may go hunt some state land or, you know, if, if I can't find a place to hunt on, uh, my private farms, I'll go hunt some state land. I'm not opposed to it. It's, but 90% of my hunting's done on private land now. Right. Now, do you approach both of those differently or do you approach them the same as far as like tactics and how you kind of do your recon and scouting and stuff like that? Or, or do you approach them differently? It's definitely different. Yeah. Um, state land, I'm, I'm trying to get away from people. I mean, it's similar, but different. Um, the the private properties I hunt, I hunt big timber. I don't hunt fields. Mm-hmm. It's just you know the uh, properties that I'm dealt, which I like. You know I like the big timber down there. We've talked about that, the rough country and the big timber and mm-hmm. you know old deer. So um, I I kind of just leave those properties alone until they're right until I until I get a deer to show up on camera or or I know that it's going to be a good day if a cold front comes through. Um, I leave those properties alone. State land, I'm, I will try to do what I say, go in the back door. Like if I think that deer are coming back onto state land from, uh, some agricultural, uh, property, I'll try and maybe walk in a mile or two miles from the other side to catch them coming in, um, from the, from the private ground. Um, I've done that for years. So, the the state land I try to just go far enough where I'm getting away from everybody where nobody's been and that's that's probably why I'm thinking about going this weekend opening morning mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure nobody's been where I'm thinking about going right so do you run do you ever run or have you in the past I guess run trail cameras on on public ground or do you just mainly rely on you know reading maps and uh, boots on the ground and just historical knowledge to kind of put you in the right position or the right tree or the right saddle or the right bench, whatever the case might be. Before we hear how Donnie uses trail cameras, let's take a quick break to hear about our partners at Exodus Outdoor Gear. Does trail camera theft got you down this season? How about trail camera failure or poor battery life? Head over to ExodusOutdoorGear.com and use the promo code TRUTH and save $20 on a trail camera and let Exodus be the cure to your trail camera ailments. Visit ExodusOutdoorGear.com. And now back to the show. I've, I've ran some um, trail cameras on state land. I've had trail cameras stolen on state land. Yeah. I don't run trail cameras on state land anymore. It's, people just steal. If they see a stand or see a, see a trail camera, they're going to steal it. It's, it's just crazy to me that right. it's just like an open invitation. If you find it, you're going to take it. It's, right. it's crazy. Yeah. So I don't. I use maps. Um, I have probably 50 paper maps down in my basement that I've had for years. Now, obviously, I use um, an app on my phone. I, you know, I, I, I hunt saddles. I hunt ridges. I hunt uh, deep draws. You know, I just try and find somewhere on state land where I think the deer are going to cross or they're going to be walking. Or, like I said, kind of coming in the back door where I can catch them coming back in. Right. Yeah, it's like I kind of followed the, the 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 Donnie Wilson method there last year. It seemed like where I went into an area that was just no one else was going to go. It was just a steep, nasty climb through a bunch of briars, and there was a, a drainage in between um, 
at, at the top of this ridge and essentially created a nice little pinch point too um, between some really kind of almost impenetrable brush and where the drainage started down the side of the mountain and that's kind of where I parked myself and those couple things like that terrain feature with the fact that no one else was going to hike there to hunt that I had deer all over me all day whenever I was headed back to camp and guys were talking about not seeing any deer and I had I was run over with bucks from the time like daylight broke to basically the time it got dark um and I think it was just all for you know kind of doing what you're saying which was just getting rid of people or getting away from people Sometimes you like to get rid of them too, but uh, just to get away from people and uh, and yeah. looking for that terrain feature that's going to help you know help funnel those deer, give me an opportunity to at least see them, and you know if you're lucky enough, then get a shot opportunity. Um, but you know, I think if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong. Did, was one maybe both, but it was one of the 200 inch deer that you killed. Was one of those on state ground? Yeah, one was on on public ground. It was a. Uh... It's on national forest property, actually. Okay, and was the second one was that on what is that was that on private? That was on private. Yep. Okay. So the the first one was on private. The second one was on public. First one was on private. Second one was on public. Okay. So I'm curious, like, so, so I guess let me start by asking this: Were either either of those deer were you were you targeting either of those, or was it one of those situations where you knew that there was a big deer in the area and you were just kind of relying on going to places where you thought you would have an opportunity to see, see, to see movement, or was it a situation where you knew specifically there is this guy that's living here and I think this is where his bedroom's at and I think this is how he's going to use this property? Well, neither of the deer, I didn't know either one of the deer were there. Okay. But the private property... We stayed completely out of it. We know big deer there. We've seen big deer there. We see them every year. We stay out of it until the first day I hunted it that year was November 2nd. I killed that deer. And then the public land, same thing. I know big deer there. I've seen big deer. Um, First time I went in was October 17th and killed him on October 17th. But both, both places... First time I was in there that year. Hmm. That's interesting. So I want to. So October seventeenth. That's kind of in that gray area that people would consider not great time to hunt, right? Um, the do, yeah. the October law, right? So is there any? Right. Do, do you have any? I guess Donnie Wilson tips to uh, hunting the October law. Is there anything that you like to do during that course of the year that you feel gives you? Better opportunities, you know, things aside from, you know, making sure that you're hunting the white, the, the right weather and, and, and things of that nature. But is there anything that you like to hunt or like to kind of target in on during that portion of the year? I, I definitely like to hunt after some sort of cold front. Okay. Um, and I would hunt someplace that time of year. I would hunt someplace that you're probably not going to hunt during the rut just because you're saving your better spots. Um, I like the state land, like I'm a I'm a big fan of hunting state land, getting way back in there that time of year. Just because if if you do screw up a deer or if you screw up that area, if you leave a bunch of scent in that area, it doesn't really matter because you probably aren't going to go back there and hunt it again. Right. So just you know, save your better spots, wait for a good cold front to come through, and go in there and hunt. You know, just take a chance. That's that's what I did that time, and you know I've seen big deer in there i've hunted that it's probably a 500 uh, 700 acre track of of national forest and i've hunted it for years 
and I've seen big deer in there. You know, I know I know they're in there. I I don't really necessarily need to put a trail camera unless I you know want to see a picture of a buck. It's nice to see pictures of bucks, but I'd rather put a, put a buck on the wall right. and have a picture of a buck. Right. Yeah. So it's just one of those places where you just stay out of until. It gets right. The state land, you can go in there, do your thing. If you don't kill, well, you had a great hunt. You got to go hunting. You didn't kill. You, you may have screwed up a deer. A deer may have walked, you know, 200 yards downwind of you, winded you. You never even seen him. Right. So it's not going to hurt you to, to hunt those kind of places that time of year and save your better spots for the rut. Right. Now, do you, do you typically like to sit all day? Do you like, you know, that time of year, are you an all day sit guy? Or are you hunting mainly evenings or what's, what's your policy whenever it comes to, you know, sitting morning, evening or all day? It's, it's really dependent on the weather. Okay. You know, like if it's one of those days where, you know, the deer are moving, I'm going to sit all day. Right. No uh, matter what um, time if, of year? Oh, uh, no, 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 no. It, okay. it has to be during the ride or, I, or I'm not sitting all day. Okay. Like, some guys will, I won't. Um, but if it's if it's prime time and the weather's what I think it needs to be, I have zero problem sitting all day. Right. Yeah, I think. I mean, that's you know, that's one of the things I think I learned the the lesson of was during the rut. I I, I typically for a while was a a morning sit kind of guy, and then you know I would get out of the stand and I'd maybe change stand locations if I wasn't getting any action early and then I would, you know, sit somewhere else in the evenings. And, um, last year it was funny cause when I was younger, I used to sit all day. Um, and then last year I decided, I was like, you know what? I'm just rut. I'm going to sit all day in the same stand morning to dark and just see what happens. And I saw more deer than I'd seen in probably the past three years combined. Um, and those handful of days and that kind of resold me on parking my keister in the stand all day during <laughs> once the last week of uh, yeah. October hits. And, uh, you know, because it was funny because I just had some friends that telling me they were like, you know, you'll be surprised the size the the size of the deer that you'll see from about eleven thirty to two o'clock. And he just kept kind of yeah. joking with me. He's like, that's when that's when giants get dropped. And he was like, you'll you'll find those midday cruisers. He's like, if you just sit in the stand. And so I took his advice and and it paid off for me. So uh, he made me a, a believer, that's for sure. But uh, yeah, I have a theory on ten o'clock to twelve o'clock. A.M. I, I think a lot of times the does will go bed. They'll, they'll finish feeding. They'll go back, go to bed. Usually that's a you know nine ten o'clock. Mm-hmm. I think bucks know that as well, and I think bucks kind of travel between ten and twelve o'clock looking for those does that are bedded. They'll kind of move in between these bedding areas and try and bump these does up to see if they're ready. Right. So I think that 10 to 12 o'clock during the rut is, is just awesome. I think it's really good. Yeah. That was when I saw a lot of the, the activity, um, last year, uh, for sure. And then I ended up arrowing mine about one thirty, but I had a couple deer in right around that 10 to 12, 12 o'clock that we might have to call that the, uh, the Donnie Wilson 10 to 12 theory. We'll patent. I like it. <laughs> um, so going back to those those two two hundred inch deer that you that you harvested. So you know, I have no experience with that caliber of deer. Um, just being completely honest, um, but I've heard guys that have killed deer. You know, in that in that realm. You know, sometimes a little smaller or whatever. But you know, just it's called call them giant deer. 
um, that change the way that they think or the way that they hunt. So I guess my question here is, is, is there something that either of those deer taught you that changed the way that you hunt today? Um, was there something that you picked up by watching them? You know, I know it was the first set of, if I'm not mistaken, that you mentioned that you killed both of those, but was there anything that you learned or that you took away from those experiences that changed the way that you, you, you approach hunting now? Mm, good question. Um, I think over the years I've evolved a little bit. Um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of no pressure. So I think that the first 200 inch deer I killed, I know we killed that deer because there was zero pressure in there. Mm -hmm. And I, I started using that more and more. And then, you know, I, I killed that deer on public land and I'm pretty sure that nobody had been where I was. So I'm pretty sure we killed that by no pressure. So I won't say that those two deer specifically taught me that, but they definitely uh, brought that brought that out. Like I, I've started using that more and more and more and more and. I think zero pressure is the way to get it done. Right. So when you say zero pressure, you're talking about like keeping it a fresh stand until the time is right, the weather's right, until the things all kind of line up to where you're like, these are the best conditions I'm going to get to sit this stand. Yes. Yeah. And, and you know, watching the wind and, you know, I, I, I found a deer today. It's probably 160 inches, something like that. He's coming in at 9 o'clock in the evening. I'm not going to hunt that deer until you know, late October, early November, I, I won't go in there. You know, I'm going to keep taking some corn in there and checking the trail cameras about every two weeks, something like that. And just, just kind of watching what he's doing. I'm not going to bump him out of there. I'm not going to sit in the stand. Um, every place that I put a trail camera, I can get to pretty easy without, um, any pressure on the area itself. Like I'm not going to go walking through the woods, um, they're usually within a hundred yards of where I park my truck. Uh, it's something where I can get in and out really easy. And, and every time I go check that trail camera, I'm taking some corn in there with me, some kind of reward for me going in there. Hmm. So if they do smell me, there's a whole fresh pile of corn um, for for smelling my scent. They're getting a reward for smelling me being in there. Right. It's so I just, you know, stay out of there. Right. That, that That's interesting, the whole corn scent kind of uh, approach where it's almost like Pavlov's dogs where it's like they get conditioned to smell your scent and know that it's dinner time. You know, because I know that, you know, that of course, that study was done with, with dogs and salivating when they heard a dinner bell or whatever. But you could even say even bears. I know when you go to Alaska, bears, when they hear a gunshot, like Kodiak Island, for example, are conditioned to know that that gunshot means there's a fresh kill on the ground. So they'll start moving towards gunshots. So the deer are kind of doing the same thing where it's like that scent is telling them that, hey, the dinner bell has rang. There is a fresh pile of corn here that Donnie had left us. There's no there's no danger there except uh, getting full. So let's go ahead and head over. That's that's exactly right. I, I've been uh, bait bear hunting up in Maine a few times and those guys when they bait that barrel they bang on the barrel with the bucket that they brought the bait in you climb up in your stand and as soon as you hear that truck drive away that bears at the bait <laughs> I mean it is there is no doubt they know what's going on 
Nice. So you you'd mentioned the uh, the wind there just a, a few a few moments ago, and I'm always curious about how guys use the wind or don't because I've I've heard different guys have different theories on it. Some guys absolutely have to have the wind in their favor 100. percent Some guys are hunting what you know what what some will refer to as an off wind or a cross wind or whatever where it's it's almost wrong for you as the hunter, but and almost 100 percent right, right for the deer. Uh, to get him in position. And then there's some guys I talk to, especially, you know, this is why I'm interested to get your opinion on this, that, that are hunting, you know, really kind of mountainous kind of rugged terrain, hilly country, um, that, you know, one of the guys I talked to, he's like, I don't pay attention to wind at all because it swirls so much. He's like, if I paid attention to wind, he's like, I'd never be in a stand. Um, and so he just kind of relies on his scent control hundred percent to try to get him close enough to take it, to get a shot opportunity. So what's your theory on, on the wind? How do you usually like to play it? I definitely pay attention to the wind. Um, I try to hunt the right wind. I try to be in the right stand for that wind. Um, when you're in the mountains, down there in southern Ohio, it's it's hilly. It's rough. Um, so you definitely get some swirling winds. One thing that I really pay attention to is thermals. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to hunt low in the morning and high in the evening. Mm-hmm. Like, um, if I, if I got to a killer spot to hunt that's down in a deep draw. The only time I'm going to go there is in the morning. And, you know, when the sun comes up, the thermal's going to start rising. That's going to help you. If you try to hunt that in the evening, every deer in the country is going to smell you. Um, So I try to hunt the right wind. Obviously, it's going to swirl, but like when I'm talking about corn and hunting, you know, where I'm hunting, I'm dumping corn, I don't hunt right over the corn. I hunt, you know, 50 to 80 yards downwind of that area. Right. Every every mature deer that knows that corn's there, they are dang sure going to walk downwind before they walk into that corn. Right. So, you know, I'm going to hunt as far downwind as I can and think, you know, still possibly get a shot. So, right. uh, the wind is super important i mean the, the swirling obviously you got to take some chances i do like that off wind mm-hmm. um sometimes if you have the perfect wind i think it's perfect for the deer too like if they go downwind they gotcha you know so i think when the deer thinks it's safe but that that wind's just off just a little bit and you're you're inside that off i think that's your best chance mm-hmm. but if it's straight downwind and you're not far enough downwind, they're going to get you. Deer, big big bucks will circle downwind 200 yards sometimes. I've had deer blow at me, you know, 400 yards away. But if a deer gets downwind of you, it's game over. They, they're going to win. Like, I'm, I'm pretty particular with my scent control, but even that, you know, they're – they win. They're they're good at it. Yeah, there's the there's there's a reason that they stay alive and get and get age right. if there's a there's a big one. It's not by being foolish, you know. Um yep. You know, I think one of the things too is I try to do in some of the hilly countries, I try to put something between me and the the downwind side, like to make it almost impossible or extremely difficult for them to get in that position to try to yep. win me. Um, you yep. know, whether that's like, you know, sitting up against some really nasty brush, it's just going to be difficult for them to get through or sitting up against, you know, some type of, you know, near like a cliff edge or something like that, where it's just going to be hard for them to get into position to bust me. Um, that of course, isn't always 
an option, but that's always, you know, something that folks out there listening can look for is try to find something that's impenetrable by the, the deer to get through to, to get in that position to wind you. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I'm always curious to how guys, you know, approach, you know, preparing for the season. You know, some guys, I know you'd mentioned that you do run some trail cameras. You're not running any on, on uh, public ground, um, for, you know, for the reasons of theft and so forth. But, uh, you know, some guys are more interested in, you know, putting boots on the ground and cutting tracks, reading sign and things of that nature. You know, what's, what's kind of your approach to harvesting a mature buck? Like, you know, if you could just kind of walk me through, if you're, if you're put on a new property or if you're, if you're going out to kind of take a look at, you know, say, um, your outfitter has now kind of expanded, maybe it's, it's land and, you know, they need you to kind of go out and take a look and survey and, and try to get some ideas of, of maybe where some good stand locations would be. How would you kind of approach that? What would be your, I guess, your, your steps to kind of dissect that? Uh, what would definitely depend on when we got the new property. If, if we got the new property in September and we're going to try and hunt it in October, um, I'm probably going to wait until it's, raining really hard to go in there and walk around um i'm going to look at a ton of maps i'm going to you know look at all the terrain features i'm going to look at aerials if i do want to go in there i'm going to wait till it's pouring down the rain um if we pick up the property in january i'm going to wait till february march and then i'm going to go in there and walk every inch of it you know and and i'll figure out the deer um it all boils back down to that, you know, no pressure. If we're going to hunt it soon, if I, if I hike and, and scout the property in the rain, I'm not going to leave any sin in there. I may bust a deer out, but they're really, they're really not going to know what's going on. And it, it, I don't think it bothers them as much to see somebody as it does to smell somebody. Right. I think smelling, I think when a deer smells you, they know exactly what it is when they see you. They're not quite sure. I don't think it bothers them as bad. Even if you jumped them out of their bed, if they didn't smell you, I don't think it would bother them as bad. Right. So when you're you're checking out your maps for this new new hypothetical property here, you know what type of what are what type of features exactly are you looking for? Like what really draws, I guess, your attention? Like if you're looking at a new property with fresh set of eyes and you're going to check out the map like what are the things that you're really that really kind of send off you know bells and whistles for you um i'm going to look at a top of map first thing and i'm if 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 it's rough country and and big timber that's what i'm going to look at first obviously if there's fields i'm going to look at you know an aerial first um if it's topo I'm looking at where I would walk if I was going to walk that property. Like, am I going to walk up that steep hill right there, or am I going to walk down that ridge? I'm going to I'm going to look at where there's a saddle. If I want to go from this draw to that draw, where's the lowest spot? Where Where's the easiest spot for me to cross? That's what, that's what I'm looking for when I'm, you know, looking at tapas. I'm looking for the easiest spot for these deer to walk because they're they're just like us, they're going to walk whatever's easiest. That's, that's probably what they're going to do. Yeah. The path of least resistance. It's funny. Cause you think these animals, you know, are built for that, for the country. Right. And, but when it comes down to it, you know, they're still are looking for, you know, the path of least resistance to get from point A to point B. Um, you know, it's funny. I just spent some time out West hunting and it, you know, it's, you're in all kinds of rugged country, 
out there, you know, and those animals, of course, are built for it, but they're the same. It's like if they have an easy way to get from point A to point B, they're going they're going to take it. Um, you know, the less calories sure. that they have to spend, the less energy they have to spend, the the less food they have to worry about trying to consume, which helps them prolong their life. <laughs> you know, so it's all about survival and so whatever they have to do to survive. So um, that's interesting, you know, that the way you kind of look, I guess, at the uh, at the uh, at, at the maps. I I guess it was maybe. Th- three years ago is when I really actually started looking at maps. Maps still to this point confuse me a little bit. I'm getting better at, at reading them. But once I started being able to understand reading the maps, my, I was able, I started seeing more deer immediately. It's kind of crazy how that oh, kind, yeah. of, kind of played that big of a role in changing my, um, I won't say my hunting success, but at least my, my encounters. Um, it was probably the biggest game changer for me was starting to understand like the different features, um, and what they look like on a map, being able to kind of dissect that before I put boots on the ground, especially for anybody who's going to hunt out of state, you know, doing your online scouting or your map scouting before you get there is a huge help. Yeah. I mean, the first thing I'm going to look at is an aerial, right? What, what kind of foliage do we have? Is it all timber? Is it, is there fields? Is how much, how much field, how much timber is there? That's that's what I'm going to look at. I'm going to look at the aerial. The second thing I'm going to look at, I'm going to pull up a topo, and then once I know the the foliage, I'm I'm probably just going to study that topo. Mm-hmm. Like I'm I'm a huge fan of topos. They're, they unless it's super flat ground, that terrain is going to kind of tell you where these deer are going to move. They're you know unless you know unless they're they're walking in foliage, then they're going to they're going to hug that that timber or whatever's there to uh, stay hidden but if it's just terrain that's moving them around it's going to move them around in certain areas that's for sure right and then those things are probably pretty reliable historically it's like once you kind of figure that out and if it's the terrain that's moving them then it should work year over year in terms of how they're going to use a, how they're going to kind of move through a property so long as you know food sources change of course throughout the course of the year and things change throughout the season um, that being taken into consideration, but by and large, they should kind of use the property year over year in a similar way. I would imagine. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. I mean, they like like I said, our, most of our stands are set year in year out. We use the same stands. I mean, we may change one or two stands here and there. You know, flip a stand, or you know, if we're getting some more sightings a hundred yards that way, and it's happened a couple of times, we may move a stand. But most of our stands are set, and, and they're set mostly on terrain. Like, we don't hunt a ton of fields at the McCoys. We hunt mostly woods, and you know, we get it done at the McCoys. We've killed some big deer down there. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I've seen some of the, uh, some of the pictures. I, will, uh, I, I 100% agree with you there. Um, so, you know, do you hunt, you know, I'm, I'm curious here about, about this question, too, because I know that the, the two big deer that we were talking about earlier, the 200 inch deer that you killed both of those on the first set. But it sounds to me like, and and tell me if, if I'm off the mark here, but it sounds to me like you, you're patient whenever it comes to picking your, your time to hunt. But it sounds like whenever that time hits, like you're aggressive and you have no problem kind of going and diving right into the area where you think the best opportunity is when the, when the conditions are right, that you don't kind of leave the, the chips to play later necessarily when you get the right conditions and you know, you have a deer that's in the area, you're in the prime spot. Does that sound about right? Yeah, it is. Um, I won't necessarily go deep into a property. Mm -hmm. Like, um, I'll kind of hunt the outskirts, but where I'm hunting, I know I'm going to see the deer. 
Um, I, th- I think you can screw up by going too deep. Like, I'll go deep on state land because I don't care if I screw up that two miles that I'm walking in. It doesn't matter to me. But if I'm hunting, um, I have one property that's 200 acres. It's all timber, but all my stands are within 200 yards of the road. You know, I I don't go in that deep because I don't want to bump deer. Like, I don't, I don't want to – I want to be able to sneak in, sneak out, um, if I if I got a trail camera in there, I want it to be easy to get to, or I'm not leaving a bunch of scent going in there. Uh, less less pressure, the better. So I will hunt those properties, and I'll hunt them. You know, if I if I have two or three good days that I think is really good, I'll hunt. I don't mind hunting a stand three days in a row if I think it's good. If the wind's right, I think the weather's right. I think the deer are on their feet. I don't mind hunting that two or three days in a row. Mm-hmm. But I won't go walking in to a place and bump a bunch of deer. Right. So you're still kind of using, even even though you're, so you're still kind of using an in, inside out kind of method whenever you're when you're yeah. hunting. And I'm, I'm supposing like as the season goes on and you, we get closer to that pre rut and that rut timing is when you'll really start to kind of maybe intrude more to the center or deeper into the property. Is that is that right? Yeah. Yeah. There's there's certain days that um, if we have a good rain and overnight and I know the next morning is going to be good, I have a couple stands that are that are farther in the property on ridgelines that I wouldn't normally hunt, um, but I know they're great areas, but I'll wait for it to rain overnight so that I can kind of slip into those spots a lot quieter. Um, so there, I do do that every so often, but not... Not a lot. Like those stands, I mean, there's one stand that I hunted one day last year. I just don't, right. I just don't like to go deep just because you're, a lot of times you're doing more harm than good. Right. The one thing you mentioned a, a second ago is something, I guess, that I kind of learned or put into action, I guess, last year. And I heard more and more guys kind of talk about it or, you know, I was always kind of using the philosophy that I, I, I would rarely hunt a stand more than once. Um, and I guess it was Steve Bartilla, actually, I heard talking about, you know, what you had just said, which was like, you know, being okay to hunt the same stand multiple sets, you know, days in a row, so long as that stand is still what you would kind of perceive to be clean, right? You know, his kind of model right. wasn't, it sounds like you're kind of saying something similar there, where it's like, if deer didn't smell you, deer didn't see you, deer didn't hear you, don't know that you were ever in that stand, well, then it's kind of like, hear no evil, see no evil. There was nothing there. Um, you know, and so then in that kind of scenario that you can hunt the same stand multiple times. Um, and I used that method last year, and that's what helped me, I think, have have success. Is that kind of like your same approach? It's like if that stand is still, like, for all intents and purposes to the deer world, clean, then you're fine with hunting that same set multiple multiple times if, as long as all the conditions are kind of lining up for you. Yep, and yeah, I, I, I think... Uh couple days is okay. Three days is pushing it. Um, every time you go in the woods, you're going to leave scent. Every time you go in the woods. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think you can get away with a couple days, maybe three. Um, but then if you're wanting to hunt anymore, you should probably stay out there for a couple weeks. Right. Just to, you know, let everything settle down. Let, let all your scent go away. Um, and then you may be able to hunt it one or two more days. So... Five days, six days in one stand throughout the season is is pushing it for me. Right. Okay. 
What a, I know you'd mentioned earlier when we were talking about wind that you're pretty diligent about your scent control. I'm just curious. I'm always interested to see what different people are doing. So what's your, uh, I'm all, I guess, let me put it this way. I'm always interested to see how neurotic people are about their scent, scent control. So I'm interested to hear what you, uh, what you do, what your regimen is. I am not crazy about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I'm crazy about it, but you know, third week of October, I'll be, all my street clothes will be washed in scent-free detergent. I only shower in scent-free soap. I only wear scent-free deodorant. Um, my truck's scent-free. The back of my truck, I keep all my clothes. I have a cap on my truck. Mm-hmm. Um, I just keep all my clothes in that. I don't use totes. I just keep all my clothes in there. But I wash my clothes about every two times that I go hunting. So if I hunt, you know, two sits, um, by the third or fourth sit, I'm going to, I'm definitely going to be washing my clothes. Um, I use some scent uh, spray, Mm -hmm. some scent killer spray. Dead down wind's what I use mostly. Not plugging dead down wind by any means, but that's what I use mostly. Right. Um, other than that, Ozonics, I know that all that stuff works. I just, you know, I don't think it's going to work enough. Right. So I don't, I, I just don't mess with it. Right. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I, uh, I think that I probably have become less and less concerned. I, mean, I still practice a pretty healthy scent regimen um you know kind of do a lot of the similar stuff that you just talked about you know my stuff actually usually stays in a tote until i'm gonna wear it i i basically strip naked on the back of my truck and change before i walk into the woods and i do the same thing when i come out and put on my clothes you know street clothes are washed just like you had mentioned descended showers all those all those types of things um but not i don't think as nearly as neurotic as i was about it a handful of years ago john do you kind of follow a similar similar suit i actually never even asked you what your scent regiment was i don't think in the past yeah mine's uh mine you know mine's real similar to donnie's um big believer in the scent free showers and um you know i even take my towel and um i'll have a couple of pairs of pants and a couple of shirts that i'm going to be wearing like donnie said street clothes and and I'll throw a towel in there and scent free wash that as well and keep that separate. But one thing, um, you know, I used to be a big ozone guy in the tree and if your thermals aren't right, um, you know, and, and we have, you get those weird mornings where the thermals just, um, everything's settling on the bottom of the base of the tree. And, and I've had some situations with the ozonics that, I just had this huge concentration of ozone at the base of the tree and it was just in serious volume, uh, to the point that that was actually spooking deer. And so I even went to the, the extreme last year that I didn't run the ozonics in the tree very much. Um, I love, um, I love treating my clothes with ozone. Um, even kind of like what Donnie was saying, if you, if I hunt two days, um, you know, I'm going to treat my clothes, uh, with ozone and I've got a big bag and I'll hang everything up in it. Um, I guess my biggest thing that I do differently than some people is, uh, I'm a big firm believer in if your clothes are getting a little sweaty, 
I mean, we're all notorious for taking our clothes off at the truck and then throwing them in a, a sealed box or mm-hmm. a sealed bag or something so it's dark and they're damp. Mm-hmm. Well, when things are dark and damp, that's where bacteria grows. Bacteria is the smell. So um, I've got uh, I've got this little device. I forget what it's even called. Um, I'm looking at uh, Scentmaster. I'm looking at it right now. It actually heats everything up to about 120 degrees, and it circulates air through charcoal. And um, I think little things like that, it's noisy as all get out. I mean, it's its like running a shop vac in the house, you know, for about right. two hours. And uh, my wife just loves the, the, the sound of that. But nonetheless, it's huge, man. Just uh, warming your clothes up to where they dry out and circulating that air, I think, is the biggest thing. Right. Hmm. Interesting. And then, of course, I think, you know, to... You know, one of the things I started doing, I guess, this year is wearing merino uh, wool bases uh, to kind of help me with uh, with some of that because I've not worn that in the past. Um, so that's something I changed to this year. I'm suspecting you guys probably do something similar. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You so, know, and, and last year I even started using some cedar cover spray. Hmm. Um, you know, you can go round and around and sure you can eliminate some of your scent and maybe you can mask some stuff and maybe you can fool their nose with some of the products that are clogging the oleofactory glands and things but um i think it's a whole idea at the end of the day i think it's easier to cover your smell than to get rid of your smell Hmm. interesting yeah i used to use some something similar that was just it was that was a cover scent um, I was always concerned that it was too like pungent, I guess. Um, was I guess it was the thing that I was concerned about, but maybe I was just using too much of it. You know, I've done the things in the past where I've taken leaves and kind of stuffed them in my box with my clothes and stuff. I got let my let them sit in there with, with leaves and so forth. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of I haven't used a cover scent in a little while. Maybe maybe I should. Maybe that's maybe that'll up my game a little bit. Who knows? Um all right. So one of the other questions, you know, one thing I, I always kind of like for me, I guess, just to change gears here, um, you know, rut of, is, of course, like the big prime time that everyone kind of targets and, and loves hunting that time time of year. Um, but I, oddly enough, actually really like late season um, is one of my favorite times. of year. Do you have a favorite time of year, Donnie, that you prefer to hunt? Uh, and maybe maybe it's rut. And if it is rut, is there a second time of year that you really prefer to hunt? Um, obviously, rut. I love pre-rut. Like- Love pre-rut, love post-rut. The rut itself, I think, overrated. Late season in Ohio with a corn pile and cold weather. If you want to kill a big deer, you can get it done. Yeah, yeah, that's like it. I mean, I hate to keep going back to the corn piles, but man, like late season in Ohio, cold weather. We have a muzzleloader season. It's the second week of January. If it's cold and you have a big deer on the property, it's, I mean, it's almost a slam dunk. Really? I mean, it's almost a slam dunk. Nice. Yeah. That, that's one of the reasons why I kind of started gravitating toward really liking late season for one on some of the private properties that I hunt in my hometown. Um, most of the folks that um, hunt don't hunt late season because the weather just kind of gets nasty and cold. And so they head for indoors, you know, so I usually have the properties to myself for the most part. Um, you know, those deer are a little skittish, of course, because we just went through, went through archery and in, in, in rifle season here in Pennsylvania. 
Um, but you know, it's also, I find like, you know, a nice kind of ridge that's near a, near a food source. And, uh, it, there's that's that area is usually kind of magic, kind of like what you're talking about. Um, you know, the deer are going to pile into that in the evening and I kind of, you know, set myself up in a good, a good pitch point or a good funnel right in front of that food source. And, um, I'm going to, at minimum, I'm going to see deer, um, you know, whether or not the, uh, the one that I'm after makes it through the year or not is, it remains to be seen, but that's usually one of my favorite times to, uh, times to hunt as well. But, uh, I want to change gears here yet, yet again here. Cause, uh, I had a, I had a question or two for you about about this, and it was funny because right before we got on the talk, I saw a post that you put on Facebook of a video you made um, of I believe it was your your kind of the uh, a montage or you know uh, uh, you know a, a through the years kind of scenario of your your daughter hunting, if I'm not mistaken. And I have a daughter; she's nine, and she's shoots a bow, and she's you know pretty excited about you know shooting her bow and. Um, she's been asking when she gets to go to Montana with me to hunt and when she can go hunt deer with me and stuff like that. Um, so I'm just curious, you know, as, uh, maybe we'll turn this into a, a parenting, a hunting parenting advice show now. Um, you know, how, what, what are some tips I guess from you to kind of keep her interested, you know, to, to see if I can't continue to get her in the timber and put her in a stand one day with me as she gets older. Gosh, man, obviously the number one thing is you got to put the animals in front of them. Right. That's, you know, if, if they get bored, that's that is death. Yeah. Like, you know. So, what I do with my kids is started them turkey hunting. You know, got them interested in hunting through turkey. You can always find turkeys. There's turkeys are everywhere. So, get them started turkey hunting and and get them interested in hunting through that, and then slowly get them into some deer hunting and and let them shoot a couple does let them get interested and just let them shoot whatever and you know then then start holding out for a buck and any buck you know they shoot any buck and then just start getting bigger and bigger and you know now my daughters want to go with me every year you know so um just kind of take your time with it don't push them um and just make sure they're seeing animals make sure there's some action right so I, I feel like I didn't foul this up yet because I did start her with turkey hunting and uh, she's gone to the blind with me two years in a row now. We've not killed anything yet, but we've had birds coming in. So that was good. Last year we got rained out a couple of times, which kind of fouled things up for us. But And she wants to go every year and I took her on a squirrel hunt last year in October. And for PA, we saw a nice PA shooter that day. I didn't have my bow with me because we were on a, on a squirrel hunt. So that was the first time she'd seen like a, a rack buck in the woods. And she just thought it was the coolest thing. It was at like 20 yards, um, standing broadside of us. And she was really excited. And so she's been asking to go back out. So we've got a turkey hunt this year in the works and we got some squirrel hunting this year in the works. Did you start her off whenever, when it came to deer, did you go to, to gun or did you start with a crossbow or how did you make that transition? Um, I went to muzzle litter. A muzzle litter. Okay. Yep. Um, with the muzzle loader, I bought a youth muzzle loader, so it's really easy for it to handle. Um, and I load it light, so I, I bought some 200 grain um, slugs, and then I only shoot 80 grains of powder, so that it's it's a real light load, but it gets it done. You know, most of the deer we're shooting are within 50 yards, so it's plenty of it's plenty of gun. And it doesn't have the recoil, so it's really easy for it to shoot. It's scoped. 
all she had to do was put the crosshairs on it. It was super simple for her. Um, so I thought that was the way to go. Here in Ohio, we're only allowed shotgun or muzzleloader if you went out with a muzzleloader. So I, I felt I could have went, you know, maybe 20-gauge slug gun. Um, I just liked the idea of having the uh, muzzleloader. I thought that kind of added some interest to it, like let her shoot it, let her see the smoke. Um, just, just a little bit more enjoyment, and it was definitely good enough to take an animal with. Right, nice. Yeah, that might have to be something I, uh, I, in, uh, I investigate. I, I actually have never, truth be told, I've never muzzle loader hunted in my in my life. I don't think. Um, so maybe that's a way. Yeah, it's to fun. Of... It's kind of addicting. What's that? It's fun. It's kind of addicting. Yeah, I, as you're mentioning it, like the smoke and the whole thing. It's like I think I would kind of. I think I would enjoy that almost as much as she would. Um, you know, but she is a pretty good shot, man. She's got a little, uh, 410 shotgun that she, uh, she, uh, put a turkey in front of her this year. She'll, I think she'll do okay with it. She was, uh, shooting the turkey target pretty well. She was plastering him. So I, I have confidence that she's, she's probably actually a better shot with a shotgun than I am to be quite honest. But, um, but I know we've kept you here for about an hour, Donnie, and I want to be sensitive to your time. So I'll ask you one more question and we'll let you kind of get going with your, with your evening. I'm sure you got some, uh, some work to do tomorrow morning, but I always like to kind of ask the folks that come on the show to, uh, take us on a hunt with them and, uh, take, you know, if you wouldn't mind, take us on a memorable hunt that you had and tell us, you know, what state you're hunting, what time of year it is. Um, it can be one where it was a close encounter. It could be one where you killed a great buck or, or not. Um, but give us every detail from the, the truck back to the tailgate, if you wouldn't mind. Um, we'll go to 2012, 200-inch non-typical on public land. So I hunted the night before on private property on a farm in Vinton County. It's a family farm. Really windy. I came down out of the tree early. Stormed all night. I was in a camper all night. Got up the next morning. Got up kind of late. Hiked in a mile and a half. Um, I already picked a spot. I'd already been in there, been in there for years. Picked a spot on the map, hiked in. By the time I got to the tree, it was getting daylight. Uh, I used a climber. I always use a climber on state land. So I, I, I attach my climber and climb up. I get everything situated. And a lot of times when I'm on state land like that or using a climber in general, I'll kind of tickle a rattle bag or whatever I'm using for rattling, maybe rattling horns. That morning I had a rattle bag. Um, so I kind of tickle that around a little bit, not get crazy, just kind of cover up noise um, from me climbing up the tree. So I do that, and I throw that back in my backpack. I sit down. I start texting my wife to tell her, you know, everything's good. I'm in my stand. And as I'm texting her, I look up and... Within 70 yards, he's walking straight towards me. Put my phone away, grab my bow, hook up. He's 30 yards. He takes, you know, 10 more steps. I grunt at him, stop him, and shoot him. And when I shot him, I thought he was, uh, you know, a great deer. I thought he was going to be 160, 170, somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. Typical. So shoot him he goes down he goes over 50 yards he lays there for a little bit I'm watching him um 
finally he expires. So I climb down, I go over, and he has 24 points. He's a typical 10-point frame, but he had all these other points around his bases, and all those points added up 34 inches of non-typical. So I call my dad and tell my dad, you know, my dad's always the first guy I call to tell him that I killed a big one. Call him, and he says, how many points is he? And I said, I don't know, Dad, I haven't counted. I start counting, and I get to, you know, 10, 11, 12. My dad says, damn, that's a good one, 12-pointer. I said, Dad, that's on one side. <laughs> so, you know, Dad asked me, you want me to come and help you? And I say, no. Three-hour drive. I said, I'll have him out before you get here. And you know, the next thing you know, I have to drag him out that mile and a half. I attached him to my belt with my climbing harness and put my tree stand on my back with my backpack, grabbed my, my bow, and counted off 20 steps until I walked you know, a mile and a half out with him. <laughs> 20 steps at a time. <laughs> 20 steps at a time. Man, that's awesome. So what did you think, man? Like when you, so this was your second one, right? Second 200 inch. Yep. So after you killed your first one, did you think that you would ever shoot another 200 inch deer? No. So what was, what was running through your head at that moment when you were thinking, like, did you realize when you walked up on him and you saw there was 24 points and you saw the size, did you, at that point, did you think, okay, this guy might be another 200? No, I thought this deer may go 180. Maybe maybe 185. With all these little points and all this stuff, this deer may go 180, 185. And I got him home, got him skinned out, and I put a tape on him. And the first time I put a tape on him, I came up with 202 and some change. Mm-hmm. And I went over the numbers and I thought, man, this I, I had to have done something wrong. This can't be right. So I did it again and came up with 202 and some change. And I came in and told my wife, I think I just killed another 200 inch deer. Like it was, it was just crazy. Like he's a good deer. Obviously he scores really well. Right. I mean, he nets, I think he nets 198 even. Right. Um, he was a good deer, but my typical is just a huge frame compared to this deer. Right. Like if, if you look at the two deer on the wall, you would never guess if both deer score 204 right. you would never guess it. Right. and it's it's just amazing that the the way the deer non-typicals and typicals scored it's amazing how much difference there can be in in two exactly the same scored deer right and that second deer puts you in some some rarefied air right if i'm not mistaken as far as like the number of of folks who have killed multiple 200 inch deer correct yeah, I've heard that, and I, I I don't know you know exact numbers and all that. I right. I don't know. Yeah, I I've heard that. Yeah, yeah. I, w- I was looking online or something like that, and there was a handful of guys that have killed killed multiples. Um, you know, and I think I heard something. I want to I want to say it might have been Don Higgins, if I'm not mistaken, was talking about um, trying to I think take his third or fourth or whatever it was because he it would be a you know a small number of folks who have ever done that man i tell you what i would probably be shaking so bad if i saw a 200 inch deer that i wouldn't be able to hit it um so i don't know that i'll ever be part of that club but it's always nice to dream i can live vicariously through you at least through one of yours that's what i think you'd be surprised you know like 
once you've killed some deer, then uh, you kind of just go into go mode, shooter mode, you know. The, right. If you don't pay attention, if you don't get caught up in all that size and you just go into shooter mode, like the the typical I killed, I didn't, I didn't think he was 200 inches. You know, I knew he was big. Right. I mean, he was he was obviously big. Right. But I didn't, you know, add him up. I think that's the worst thing to do is, is start adding up. When you're in your tree stand, you're looking at a deer, start adding up what you think he scores. I think... I think there just needs to be a switch in your brain that says, I'm shooting or I'm not shooting. Right. He's big enough, not big enough. And and once you, once you start doing that, then I won't say they're easy to kill because they're never easy to kill. Right. But I don't think you get so uptight about it. Right. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hope that one day I get to get to shoot you a text or shoot you a, a, a message and let you know how I, how I fared whenever I saw a monster. I'll hope, I'll hope that day. Happens. Yeah. Heck yeah. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Right. But Hey man, I do appreciate you jumping on. I, I want to be sensitive to your time. Thanks for uh, coming on and sharing all that information. Uh, thanks for the great story. And uh, I'll look forward to kind of following along with you uh, during this year, seeing all your, your hunting excursions. And then of course, watching your kids get into the timber with you. But before I let you go, is there anything, uh, you know, places where people could find more information about you, uh, the outfitter that you're, that you're guiding for, or, um, you know, any Instagram page or anything like that? Uh, Instagram's D Wilson two Oh four, uh, real McCoy outdoors.com is the, uh, outfitter I work for. Yeah. And, uh, all the folks out there listening, be sure to give Donnie a follow. It's, uh, awesome photography work. Um, tell, tells really good stories with, with the lens. Um, and it's always fun to kind of follow along with you during your, your family excursions and, uh, and, and watch how your family enjoys the, uh, the outdoors and the, the hunting heritage as well. So uh, give him a follow Donnie. Thanks again for joining and, uh, hope to talk to you soon. Good luck this year. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I want to thank Donnie for joining us. Be sure to head over to Donnie's Instagram and Facebook pages and give him a follow. Also check out the real McCoy outdoors, Facebook page. Uh, and website if you're considering using an outfitter in the future. I'll place all the links for both of these in the blog post show notes. Most importantly, I want to give all of you a big thank you for tuning in. Also, I want to wish all of you good luck as we're heading into the best part of deer season, the uh, pre-rut and rut phases. So hope all of you have the type of season that you're hoping to, uh, we're hoping to have and uh, all your hard work in the off-season pays dividends this time of year. Uh, be sure to go to iTunes and hit the iTunes subscribe button so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes of this podcast. And follow along with us on the Truth From The Stand and Instagram and Facebook pages to keep up with what we're hap- what's happening in the Truth From The Stand world. And finally, need to give a big shout out to our partners that continue to help us make this podcast possible. Whitetail Institute of North America, Exodus Outdoor Gear, and Lone Wolf Portable Tree Stands. And until next time, we'll see you. It takes a special no one to call a Tales, broken letters, rationalized yourself in numbers, but I gotta get away from here, gotta get away from here,
All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace microdosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.